Welcome to this edition of Time to Talk. We are here with the Prime Minister of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Dr. Ralph Gonzalez, and we'll be speaking with him on a range of issues that he's responsible for or very much involved in right here in the beautiful Spice Isle of Grenada. Dr. Gonzalez, welcome to Grenada. Thank you very much. And welcome to Time to Talk. Thank you. Well, I know you are here on a very sad occasion. It's the funeral of the mother, one of the most known, whether famous or infamous, prime ministers of the region, Maurice Bishop. His mother was buried today. I mean, I, know, I knew Maurice Bishop quite well, and that's why I said to you that he was a Democrat, but who had to use revolutionary means to come to power. But did he have to? Absolutely, no question. But based on what was said on the ground, Maurice Bishop was so popular that if he had just waited until that election was for, called, he would have won. For them to kill him? Waited for them to kill him? That so was, you believe that they would have killed him absolutely. before the election? In fact, the evidence points to the fact that they were seeking to do so. And that is why they moved at the time they moved. This is the Lest We Forget podcast, a historical podcast by Tenement Yard Media. I'm Gabrielle, your host for this episode. This is the fifth episode in this season's coverage of the people, events, causes and consequences that led to the 1979 Grenadian Revolution, which, fun fact, is considered the only successful revolution in the Anglophone Caribbean. In this episode, we'll chronicle the toppling of Eric Gehry's government. Before we speak on the nitty-gritty of how Eric Gehry's government was overthrown, let's rewind a bit. There's a special group of people who up to this point we have not mentioned. Now there is NJM, the New Jewel Movement, a political party, However, there existed a subgroup of the party, and that was the National Liberation Army, NLA. In his autobiographical account of the revolution, We Move Tonight, the making of the Grenada Revolution, Joseph Ewart Lane would state that Hudson Austin, a civil engineer who was the accepted commander of the NLA, told him that, quote, the NLA is the military wing of the New Jewel Movement, which will deliver the Grenadian people from the clutches of Garyism. End quote. The NLA was formed in 1973 and was birthed out of the 1973 and 1974 strikes that took place in Grenada, and throughout the 70s, this group operated under the radar. Still, Joseph Ewart Lane would recount a particular incident that occurred in November of 1977. According to Mr. Lane, he was told that he was selected to go overseas for special training. According to this recollection, one Sunday in December of 1977, 11 men and one woman of the NLA left Grenada for this military training course. You might note that we did not refer to which country this training took place as our research did not identify the exact location. However, what we did find was an essay by Andaye, celebrated Guyanese feminist political activist and a past member of the Working People's Alliance, 
a political party in Guyana who had passed leadership such as Dr. Walter Rodney and Dr. Clive Y. Thomas making reference to this event. The essay was prepared for the panel The Grenada Revolution Regional Perspectives for the Caribbean Studies Association Annual Conference in 2010. In this essay, Andaye stated that NJM had relationships with both the People's Progressive Party PPP and the People's National Congress Reform PNC, both political parties in Guyana. Most importantly, she noted that the PNC provided NJM with both military training and assistance. As such, Guyana might be the country in question. For reference, the PNC was the ruling party in Guyana throughout the 1970s and we'll speak on their government later on in this episode. Then there was the issue of arming the NLA. In a 1979 interview with Caribbean Life and Times when Maurice Bishop was asked when did the NJM start to acquire guns, Bishop did not answer. Still. Joseph Ewart Lane would outline that the first time he himself came across guns to arm the NLA would be in the earlier part of 1978. According to him, he helped unload 16 M1 rifles and over 1,000 rounds of ammunition came into the country with containers labelled Greece. Months after this, the NJM was planning a fifth-year anniversary event of Bloody Sunday to take the form of a Sunday rally. In the middle of this event being planned, Gary issued a ban on the public rally. Realizing the situation they were in, reports from persons a part of the movement at this time stated that the NJM started planning a special operation. Throughout November to December of 1978, the party drew up plans to overthrow Gary and his government. According to Joseph Ewart Lane, this plan was divided into three stages. Stage 1. Capture Gary and take him as prisoner. Then the army, the Green Beast, was to be broken up and their weapons seized. At this stage, they would also take control of the national radio station, Radio Free Grenada. Stage 2 consisted of plans to call a general uprising in which the NJM took control of the 36 police stations on the island, and Stage 3 involved the rounding up of all Gary's inner circle to prevent any chance of regrouping in Gary's name. Allegedly, with this systemic plan in place, the NJM made plans to target Gary in February with six men disguised in police uniforms to capture him in the early hours of the morning. Then, with the armed support of the 16 rifles, the organization retrieved back in 1978 in the grease-labeled barrels, they would ambush the Green Beast at True Blue Barracks. But this overthrow in the early days of February 1979 was not to pass, for both Maurice Bishop and Bernard Cord had their doubts about how effective and prepared persons were in their execution of the plan. At this time, Bishop served as the chairman of the NJM Security and Defense S&D Committee, which was responsible for the party's military affairs. Bernard served as the chairman of the party's organizing committee. There would be two more delays after this one. Soon after, still in February 1979, 
the U.S.-based intelligence organization, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, arrested two Grenadian youth, Chester Humphrey and Jim Wardali. Both men were charged with illegally exporting weapons concealed in barrels of grease to Grenada. Gloria Payne Banfield, permanent secretary for the planning in the Prime Minister's office under the Gary administration, who appeared in a documentary on Eric Gary by Bev Sinclair, had this to say. But there was another occurrence that was very interesting, that that year at Independence, 1979, he announced that the FBI in the United States had contacted him about, about barrels of, of grease in which guns were being smuggled into Grenada. And apparently some people were found in a warehouse in Maryland packing these barrels. But they claimed that one or two of the barrels had already come in. This incident would create multiple rumors in Grenada, resulting in numerous police raids on the house of members of NJM taking place throughout February and early March of 1979. Now things quickly took a turn. On Saturday, March 10, 1979, New Jewel Movement members were in St. George's to discuss the impending general election after Eric Gary began to lay down election signals. Allegedly minutes into this meeting, a woman burst through the door shouting that the police were coming. She informed the meeting occupants that police officers were breaking into the homes of both Bishop and Cord. Apparently, four senior members of the party, Bishop Cord, Unison Whiteman, and Hudson Austin, were all wanted by the police. The meeting broke up instantly when Bishop Cord and Whiteman went to South St. George's. The rest of the leadership of the NJM would then go into hiding, except for Vincent Noel, who unfortunately got the news late, and he was arrested and detained by the police. According to Joseph Ewart Lane, when he went to St. David on that same day to inform NJM supporters of this new development, they were of one accord. When it comes to Sir Eric Gary, there was only one option, grease him. If you're unfamiliar with the term, to grease someone is to either bribe, think of the phrase to grease someone's palm, or to kill. I'm sure you can imagine what it meant in this context. Eric Gary apparently had other plans of who would be greased. On Monday, March 12, 1979, Eric Gary departed Grenada for New York on government business and already, allegedly, left instructions regarding the future of the members of NJM. An NJM informant in senior levels of the police force informed the party's personnel that Gary instructed his security officials that by the time he came back from New York where he would be spending a week, he wanted to see either graves or cells of NJM leadership. According to historians Catherine Sunshine and Philip Wheaton in their book Grenada the Peaceful Revolution, quote, Gary's pattern of leaving Grenada after ordering his security forces to carry out repressive actions was well known and his departure provided the final confirmation that violence was imminent. End quote. 
If you're wondering at this time where Bishop Cord and Whiteman were after fleeing the meeting of March 10, well, from all documentation of them at this time, the three men were hiding, ironically, in a house 300 meters from Gary's official residence, Mount Royal. This was not the first time that the leadership of the New Drill movement had to go into hiding. Belmar Innocent, the commissioner of police we mentioned in our previous episode whom the Duffus Commission advised to leave public office over the events of Bloody Sunday, well, he was assassinated in January of 1978. Fearing for their lives as some were of the view that the NJM was behind his death for at this time Belmar was serving as a minister in Gary's cabinet, the leadership of the NJM went into hiding. Soon after, police accused Kennedy Budhlal and his Tivoli group of carrying out the killing. The NJM members would not come out of hiding until the situation had returned to normal. Bishop would go on to lead the defense team for Budhlal and his co-accused. Yet this was not like 1978 and a more tense atmosphere cloaked the island. Something was heating up in the country and at this point, it seemed that the almost 12 years of political turmoil was catching up to everyone in the country. The question was, when would it reach its boiling point? On Tuesday, March 13, 1979, Grenadians would find out. Remember that Gary departed Grenada on Monday, March 12, 1979, allegedly leaving behind instructions for the arrest and subsequent assassination of leaders of the NJM. On that same day in the mid-afternoon, while in hiding, the NJM leadership decided that this was D-Day. Maurice Bishop would give this account. It's Saturday before Tuesday. That the intention of the government was to search us and detain us. We decided to go underground. While we were underground, more information came to us on the Monday morning that the plan was that Gary was going to flee the country, leaving orders to have our leadership killed. We therefore, around 3 o'clock, summoned a council, a meeting of our top cadres, and there and then, the decision was taken that we should move rather than wait to be killed. Then in just 12 hours, the leadership of NJM went about planning the overthrow of Gary's government. Still, it was not in their favor. NJM had around 60 people taking part in this revolution. They had only 16 M1 rifles and a handful of shotguns, revolvers and Molotov cocktails. Still, Bishop captured this risky spirit of the movement when he stated, quote, It was them or us and we didn't plan on it being us, end quote. In a 1979 interview with the Caribbean Sun, in an article titled How the Overthrow Was Organized, Bernard Cord said the following, That kind of party organization was forced upon us by the making of our newspaper illegal, by the refusal to use loudspeakers, by the refusal to permit us to hold public meetings, to demonstrate, and so on. The other side of that coin was that it forced us to be a disciplined, organized, tightly knit security conscious party so that it was therefore possible in the circumstances to call on people day and night to respond to the call and move swiftly. Now catch this. Here's the situation. 
At around 4 p.m. on Monday, March 12, 1979, in a house in St. George's, a small group of teenagers, 20 and early 30-year-olds, were planning an event that had never happened in Anglophone Caribbean history, a successful revolution. According to the Caribbean Sun, the NJM strategy of overthrowing Gary was based on three assumptions. One, they believed that a majority of Grenadians would back them in overthrowing Gary. Two, Gary's supporters would not fight back. And three, the Grenadian police and army would offer no resistance to the overthrow of Gary's regime. So with these assumptions and a handful of weapons, but with almost six years of frustration under Gary's government and the knowledge that leadership would not live to see the end of the week, at around 4 a.m. on Tuesday, March 13, 1979, 46 members of the NLA came rolling down Freedom Hill towards True Blue Barracks. The True Blue Barracks were located 4 to 5 miles from St. George's, housing the main army barracks of Grenada. In the wee hours at 4 a.m., soldiers were awakened by loud bangs. The soldiers were taken by surprise and in just an hour, the young persons of the NLA burned the barracks to the ground and captured all the weapons and ammunition that were housed there. The soldiers who did not flee, they were arrested. Then. As outlined in their plan, the NJM went after the radio station. At 5 a.m., the country's national radio station, Radio Free Grenada, was captured and was soon after declared the headquarters of the revolution. The first news of the revolution was broadcast to the nation at around 6 a.m. Government of the criminal dictator, in the radio broadcast, the NJM leadership demanded that police stations surrender and to do this, they asked them to hoist a white flag. Afterwards, they began to mobilize people. In the same radio broadcast, they stated, Attention the people of Grenada. All workers, youth, women, Members of the public are asked to gather at central places and await the arrival of the armed forces of the People's Revolutionary Army. You are called upon to go with your armed forces to make sure that the police stations are already showing the white flag of surrender. Those which are not will have to be dealt with. This revolution is your revolution. The freedom coming is for all of us. Play your part now. Minutes after the broadcast, a large crowd gathered around different police stations across the country, armed with knives and cutlasses, instructing police officers to raise a white flag and surrender. Then volunteers across the island would guard against any counter-revolutionary activities, while others created roadblocks to search cars for concealed weapons. Telephone workers would then block all overseas calls coming into the country, and then a large crowd gathered at the revolution headquarters to the radio station. Here, citizens lent their vehicles so NJM personnel could transport persons and weapons, while other persons, mostly women, cooked vast quantities of hot food for members of the NJM. Renowned English journalist Hugh O'Shaughnessy would be quoted as saying, 
The coup was enormously popular with Grenadians and it seemed as if the whole of the island was coming out into the streets to celebrate. I apologize for my English accent. Moving on. <laughs> then, at 10 a.m., with the help of citizens, NJM rounded up members of the Mongoose Gang. It seems that NJM's assumptions of how Grenadians would react to the revolution were correct because soon after, cabinet members surrendered and most of the police stations had either given their support for the revolution or surrendered. It wasn't until 4 p.m. that the last police station was controlled. Then at around 10.30, Maurice Bishop, who would emerge as the leader of the revolution, gave his maiden address. Let me assure all supporters of the former Gary government that they will not be injured in any way. Their homes, their families and their lives are completely safe, so as they do not offer violence to our government. However, those who resist violently would be firmly dealt with. Still, this assurance was not even necessary, for there was little to no opposition to the revolution. In actuality, only three persons died during the whole ordeal, two of Gary's soldiers and an alleged accidental death of a civilian. By that evening, about 60 persons had been placed in custody, mostly members of the Mongoose gang. This almost bloodless coup would give the revolution its nickname the peaceful revolution. In his 1979 interview with the Caribbean Sun, Bishop stated, Our position has always been very simple. He said, Peaceful means, if possible, revolution if necessary. In some way, the New Jewel movement achieved both. In the same radio broadcast, Bishop went on to say, People of Grenada, this revolution is for work, for food, for decent housing and health services, and for a bright future for our children and great-grandchildren. The benefits of the revolution will be given to everyone, regardless of political opinion or which political party they support. Let us all unite as one. Around 4 p.m., Eric Gary's wife, Lady Cynthia Gary, who was also a member of parliament, and Grenada's Deputy Prime Minister Herbert Prudhomme issued statements calling for the full cooperation with the now new government. Then there was a press conference between 4 and 4.30 that day and by then the events of March 13 were more or less over. Gary, upon hearing of the revolution, would initially dismiss the historic event. He issued statements to the press where he claimed that he was still Prime Minister and that the radio station was seized by a quote, little group of communists. Historians Catherine Sunshine and Philip Wheaton stated that Gary asked for arms and mercenaries from the United States, Canada and Britain to retaliate, however, they all refused his request. Still, almost a week after the revolution, almost 20,000 persons gathered in Queen's Park Stadium in St. George's. Reports stated that the crowd would sing, dance, and shout, Freedom come, Gary go, Gary gone with a UFO. So, on March 20th, Gary would finally resign as Prime Minister of the country 
and would remain in the United States. In the days after the revolution, members of NJM broke into Gary's home at Mount Royal. Allegedly, they found a collection of crosses and statuettes, animal skulls, ceremonial robes and books on witchcraft. In a documentary of the Grenadian Revolution by the Associated Press titled Grenadians Bishops Move, pictures of these items can be seen. Then, allegedly, they also found pornographic photographs of sexually exploited women. Also stated in this search was an apparent enemies list naming 30 persons, two of whom were already murdered. Then, news came after that, that there was only $24 left in the national treasury. When news reached the ears of the other Caribbean countries, there were multiple reactions to the revolution and the formation of the new government, the People's Revolutionary Government, PRG. The first country to recognize the new government was Guyana, whose Prime Minister was Forbes Burnham, a member of the PNC party. In the first 24 hours of the revolution, Burnham would provide Grenada with arms, training officers, and rice. Then there was Jamaica, where by 9am on the day of the revolution, Prime Minister Michael Manley was on the phone with Maurice Bishop. Join me now for a side quest. It's time for an important side note. Both Michael Manley and Forbes Burnham were university friends, where both men attended the London School of Economics and Political Science in the 1940s. They were both students of the same socialist political academic, Dr. Harold Lasky. Dr. Lasky's other students who shared classes with both men at this exact same time included Barbados's future Prime Minister Errol Barrow and Lee Kuan Yew, former Prime Minister of Singapore, who is known as the country's founding father. There was also Pierre Trudeau, future Canadian Prime Minister and father of the country's current Prime Minister, as at 2022, Justin Trudeau. This friendship between all these men would last through the ages. In her book, Drum Blair, Rachel Manley, Michael Manley's daughter, stated that both Errol Barrow and Forbes Burnham were her godparents. At such, it would come as no surprise to you, listener, that it would be both Michael Manley and Forbes Burnham who would serve as the international public relations officers of the revolution, where they, quote, worked tirelessly and successfully from the first hours to secure international recognition for the revolution, end quote. Barbados's recognition came after Prime Minister Tom Adams recognized the new government. Still, historians Catherine Sunshine and Philip Wheaton in their book Grenada the Peaceful Revolution spoke on recognition from these three leaders. Quote, Jamaica's support reflected on the progressive spirit of Manley's democratic socialism. Guyana's motivation was to preserve its facade of a progressive foreign policy which covered a multitude of injustices within its domestic borders. Barbados's official recognition turned out to merely be a cover-up for harassment tactics, which reflected its close dependency upon the United States, which was obviously displeased with the revolt." End quote. And after this quote, a brief explanation is needed for persons who might need more context. 
In the matter of Jamaica, Prime Minister Michael Manley would come to power in 1972 and his ruling government would style their leftist politics democratic socialism which saw throughout the 1970s Jamaica aligning itself with similar leftist governments and causes of the global south. In Guyana, Forbes Burnham over time developed an authoritarian style of politics where many political and social scientists refer to him as a dictator where his government developed a rap sheet for multiple human rights violations and injustices. Dr. Walter Rodney in his last popular work before his assassination, People's Power No Dictator, published in October 1979 stated that, quote, the Burnham dictatorship crept upon Guyanese people like a thief in the night. His violations of human rights were frequent, but they were sufficiently gradual that many persons did not realize what was going on until it was too late." End quote. Then in the matter of Barbados, we return to thoughts from historians Catherine Sunshine and Philip Wheaton, who said that Tom Adams, the island's prime minister, tried to stop Britain, France and Canada from recognizing the PRG. They also stated that he attempted to block Grenada's application for membership in the Socialist International. But onwards with the other Caribbean countries' reactions. Cuban President Fidel Castro would describe the attack on the True Blue Barracks as a successful moncada. Soon, most of the other eastern islands would come out against the revolution. Now remember, Bishop up to this point had a reputation as not only one of the best defense attorneys in Grenada, but a regional human rights lawyer who had close relations with other left-leaning persons in the region. As such, Grenada's closest neighbors saw the potential of the revolution, creating a ripple effect in their country. In his publication, Revolutionary Grenada and the United States, Dr. Ken Boudou stated that, quote, while privately these states were pleased that Gary was forced out, they, to some degree, objected to the manner in which it was done. While firstly political change in the English Caribbean in accordance with the Westminster system was always achieved peacefully, Caribbean leadership began to wonder whether a precedent was now established for similar change in their own countries." End quote. Still, there was a country whose reaction was of the utmost importance, and that was Trinidad and Tobago. In past episodes, we've spoken about the historic relationship between both countries. Trinidad and Tobago with Dr. Eric Williams as their prime minister in time would recognize the new government. However, they made their position clear that they would not interfere with the internal affairs of Grenada, but until the PRG held a free and fair election, there would be no cooperation on TNT's part with the government. To this, Bishop would have this to say. I'm hoping that process will be completed fairly soon. We are about to get involved in the question of enumerating the supporters, which is of course a necessary prerequisite to the holding of fair and free elections. Did you I have... can't give you a date, but we're working on it. Then there was the reaction from the United States of America. Initially, they recognized the PRG government, however, that recognition was questionable. Immediately after the revolution, when Grenada sought economic aid to rebuild its economy, the US only offered them 5,000 US dollars. 
Over time, the U.S. would begin to see Grenada as a threat. It was the middle of the Cold War, after all, and the NJM was a Marxist-Lenist party. Still, the NJM would spur into action by getting to work on the country's legislation and recovering their economy and society. The newly formed People's Revolutionary Government consisted of 14 members, 9 members of NJM and 5 other persons, some from the business community and the Grenada National Party GNP. The group also included a medical doctor and a school teacher. The NJM members apart from the government included Boris Bishop, appointed as Prime Minister as well as Minister of Information, Minister of Interior and National Defense, Minister of Health, and Minister of Karikou and Petit Martinique Affairs. For persons who may not be aware, Karikou and Petit Martinique are nearby dependency islands of Grenada. Now we continue with our list. Bernard Cord was appointed Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of Finance, Trade and Planning, Kenrick Raddix appointed as Attorney General, Minister of Legal Affairs, Minister of Agro-Industry and Industrial Development. Unison Whiteman appointed Minister of Foreign Affairs, Tourism and Civil Aviation. Selwyn Strawn appointed Minister of National Mobilization. George Louison appointed Minister of Agriculture, Rural Development and Cooperatives. Hudson Austin appointed Commander of Revolutionary Armed Forces and Minister of Labor, Communication and Works. Norris Bain appointed Minister of Housing and Jacqueline Kreft appointed Minister of Education, Youth, Sports, Women, Social Services and Community Development. Not a member of the revolutionary government but, still important, there was the then 32-year-old international relations graduate student Dr. Decima Williams. Bishop would appoint her to the position of Grenada's ambassador to the United States and the Organization of American States, OAS, who throughout her tenure would never be acknowledged by U.S. authorities. They refused to accept her credentials. To note, the government was primarily made up of young persons in their 20s and 30s, and their prime minister was only 34 years old. And yet, Grenada, which had been under political and societal tension for almost 12 years, would begin a new era in her history, energized by the revolutionary government's motto, forward ever, backward never. Still, this island state created history as the first country in the Anglophone Caribbean to have a successful revolution. In the book, The Point Is to Change the World, Selected Writings of Andaye, edited by Dr. Alyssa Trotz, Andaye would sum up the impact of the revolution in her country of Guyana and the larger Anglophone Caribbean in a 2010 published essay titled The Grenada Revolution, the Caribbean Left, and the Regional Women's Movement, Preliminary Notes, One Journey. Allow me to read you an excerpt. I was standing outside the center of the Working People's Alliance, WPA, in Tiger Bay in the Guyana capital, Georgetown, sometime during the morning of March 13, 1979, when I saw a man running towards the center, shouting. As he came closer, I realized that it was one of the leaders of the pre-party WPA, Sase, 
the last person I would expect to see running down the street dressed in his well-ironed john and trousers, briefcase flapping against his leg. Not until he reached almost right up to me did I realize that he was shouting, Maurice, overthrow Gary! As the news spread, members and supporters poured into the center. Eurofic. Soon, posters sprang up all over the city proclaiming, Disha of Iran, gone, Gary gone, who next? The answer, of course, was Burnham, the Guyanese president. We knew that getting him out of office would be far harder than removing Gary in Grenada. The blatant and massive rigging of the Guyanese elections of 1968 and 1973 had demonstrated his absolute determination not to be voted out of office. Key institutions had been brought under his control with the Sofia Declaration of 1974, which promulgated the paramountcy of his party over the state. The level of militarization in Guyana far exceeded that in Grenada. To control workers, the president had state ownership of 80% of the economy available for abuse. In 1978, with a rigged referendum, he had ensured himself unprecedented powers under the Constitution. In March 1979, the WPA was still a loosely organized, though influential, pressure group of just about 50 to 60 members. But at the beginning of 1979, we made the analysis, carried in the January issue of Day Clean, that 1979 would be the year of the turn and the victory in Grenada was firing or self-belief as it would fire the self-belief of the people of the whole English-speaking Caribbean. This was the world before Reaganism and Thatcherism and neoliberalism, a world of rebellion on every continent and sometimes on the islands in between, armed anti-colonial and anti-imperial struggles, youth and student uprisings, including in the United States against the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, the black power movement, the rise of the second wave of the women's movement. But Grenada was different. Grenada was one of us, showing that we too could make revolution. And with that, we call an end to today's episode. To view the sources used in this episode and our recommendations to learn more about the topic, visit our website at tenementyardmedia.com. A transcript of this episode will be available five days after it has been posted to podcast outlets. We'd love to hear from you though. Follow our social media pages at tenementyard underscore on both Instagram and Twitter to view additional postings on this episode and updates on other content created by Tenement Yard Media. We're open to conversation about this and other episodes and all happenings around Caribbean history and culture and food and music. Beer things. <laughs> we just want to hear from you. Just a quick note before we leave, we're over on Patreon at patreon.com slash tenementyardmedia if you'd like to support the show with a monthly donation of as little as $1. You can also make a donation of your choice at tenementyardmedia.com. That's patreon.com slash tenementyardmedia for a donation of as little as $1 or a donation of your choice at tenementyardmedia.com. Until next time... 
I'm Gabrielle and this has been Lest We Forget, a historical podcast from Tenement Yard Media. What good? <laughs>